Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this Sydney Ideas event, Digital Rights. What are they and why do we need them? To begin, uh, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and our responsibility to respect and care for country, people and spirit. We're delighted to welcome you this evening to this timely discussion of digital rights. Uh, we thank Sydney Ideas, especially Meredith Hall, for organising the event, which is co-presented with the Digital Rights and Governance Project, supported by the Sydney Research Excellence Initiative, SREI, funding scheme of the University of Sydney. So the evening falls into, four, into three parts. Uh, we have a panel discussion, uh, followed by a launch of the digital rights reports, and you'll have a summary, executive summary of the, that report, which just got released today, um, on your seats. And in the inside cover of that executive summary, there's a a URL, a web address, that will give you the whole report. Without further ado, just allow me to introduce our panellists. We have got a terrific panel uh, here this evening, and particularly thank those who've come from, from interstate um, to be with us. So, first up, we have Ariadne Vroman, who's a, a professor of... Ari, do you want to pop your hand oh. up or indicate? You'll, you'll, or you'll know. Uh, professor of political sociology at the University of Sydney. Her recent book, Digital Citizenship and Political Engagement, looks at the rise of digital activism and get up in Australian advocacy uh, politics. So next we have Ellen Broad. So Ellen's a freelance data strategist, policy and governance expert and trainer and was previously head of policy for the Open Data Institute in the UK. After Ellen, we've got Osman. So Osman Chu is the policy and research officer at the Community and Public Sector Union and he's editor of Challenge magazine. So welcome, Osman. Um, then we have Rob Hansen on the far left, um, who's a risk management professional who specialises in the policy implications of emerging technologies in his role as a senior researcher at CSIRO's Data61. And Rob is a senior honorary uh, associate at the ANU's Autonomy Agency and Assurance, the 3A Institute. So welcome, Rob. And uh, Rob will also launch the report after the panel, so we're really particularly indebted to him. And so then, last but not least, we have Associate Professor Nicholas Souza. Nick's from the Law School at Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane, Australia, and he's a Chief Investigator at QUT's Digital Media Research Centre. So the format is each panellist will give a brief uh, presentation and then we'll be able to have Q&A and discussion. So without further ado, Ariadne, welcome, first up. Okay, so on behalf of our group, so the seven of us who are co-authors of this report. I'm just going to give a bit of an overview about what we did, some of our core findings, and then we'll, um, in, I guess, expand on that in the discussion later on. So, first of all, I've just uh, pulled out a couple of quotes from our qualitative part of our research, from our online discussion group. Uh, and you can see these, these quotes, you know, surely at some point corporations can just respect the privacy of the individual, not to mention the risk if they have all of this data stored about you and then get hacked. 
and this is quite, uh, I guess, relevant to a lot of debates going on at the moment, not least the um, hack of Uber data that we, um, we heard about through the media last week. The second quote, we pay more attention to the physical trouble of the world, but give no care to the things that thousands of people are seeing every day. And so from this quote, we get a sense of people's concern about online speech, online debate, and how that might be affecting their everyday lives. So these quotes get us to think about how digital privacy matters to everyday Australians, how they recognise the risks of a lot of their data being increasingly online, as well as the harms that might be done to them from the interactions that they're having online. So with our very I guess, self-conscious focus on digital rights and doing this research, we wanted to focus on the massive changes that are happening in society, but from the point of view of ordinary people. And we also wanted to be able to sort of bring into stark relief and question the dominance of decision-making of both corporate platforms and governments in the way that they're accessing our data. So to do this, uh, we sort of had a three-stage process to our research report. First of all, we started with um, designing an original online survey of 1,600 Australians that we conducted with Essential Media. Uh, we followed up with an online discussion group with 14 frequent social media users. They were all aged in their um, mid-30s, were all uh, working as well, so in paid work. And we really engaged with that online group with more detailed scenarios, particularly about data targeting, uh, advertising, the use of social media at work, and also their experiences of online speech and online debate. And then thirdly, in writing up the report, we also started to pull together uh, policy analysis of digital rights case studies. So this varied from thinking about the European Union guidelines on the right to privacy and data protection. We also looked at the Centrelink data matching program that there's been extensive debate about. And we also talked about the unregulated emergence of the gig economy and what that's doing to new forms of paid work. So our analysis with these three data sources covers the four areas of privacy, profiling and analytics, government data matching and surveillance, uh, workplace change, and freedom of expression and the regulation of speech. And part of what we're trying to do is, in terms of bringing the citizen voice back into this discussion, as people, public opinion, is rarely included in debates over the use and collection of our online data and what the limitations to that might be or should be. And we, as ordinary citizens, are not often included in decision-making uh, of political and corporate actors. So I'm just going to give really uh, top-level snapshots of each of those four areas that we focused on in the research. And then um, hopefully you'll go away and want to read the report because it all looks incredibly exciting. All right, so first of all, uh, we looked at privacy. And we sort of tried to think about this idea of uh, online privacy and what that might mean. And overwhelmingly found that Australians are concerned about their online privacy. So while a lot of people think that they've got nothing to hide, there's only really a small group, less than 20% of people, who think that concerns about online privacy are exaggerated. Most of our respondents don't feel in control of their privacy online. So you can see that about less than 40% of people feel that they can control their privacy online. And the variation here is that people under 40 and frequent users of social media, so frequent posters, are most likely to think that they um, can control their privacy online. 
We also found that two-thirds of people do take active steps to protect their privacy. Um, around a similar amount have changed the privacy settings on the social media that they use. Um, and, and we did find that whilst young people and frequent posters feel they can control their privacy, all age groups are similarly concerned about privacy violations. So they're all worried that privacy violations are real and are happening frequently. We also found that when it comes to privacy, women think about the online world differently from men. Women are more likely to agree that they need and do protect their privacy online and that they change their social media settings to protect their privacy, but they don't feel any more in control of their privacy after they're, after they're taking those kinds of active steps. So a second area of our data was really thinking about, well, how do people think about who is doing this violation of our privacy? And we compared and contrasted how people thought about corporations, including many of the social media platforms that they're using every day, with governments and with other people in the digital world. So one of the first things we can see is that the, the red line, which we're asking people about whether or not these actors are violating their privacy, so the red, the red parts of the row, I think that's red, brown, orange, uh, only very small groups, so between 10 and sort of 17% of people think that these actors are not violating their privacy. So we can see that a majority think that corporations are violating their privacy and nearly 50% think governments and other people are as well. But there's also this sort of ambivalent group of about a third where you can kind of get a sense that they're saying it depends and it depends on the particular situation, the particular scenario. So we did ask our um, respondents about different kinds of scenarios. We modelled um, a group of questions that were really based on government programs for phone companies and internet service providers keeping metadata on our phone calls and our web use, which might sound familiar to a lot of people, and we found that a majority are opposed to that, to that kind of collection of their data. But then when we asked whether, the, whether or not they favoured law enforcement or security agencies accessing metadata, the number in favour of that kind of program did increase. When we actually framed that collection of that kind of metadata as an anti-terrorism measure, then we found that 57% of people agreed with um, that collection of that kind of data. So we can kind of get a sense that how people think about privacy, collection of data by government, does depend on the particular scenario and situation at hand. This trade-off between privacy and security is a real one, and clearly citizens understand it and are thinking it through. But we also need to think about that all data collection and surveillance um, isn't really about increasing our security. And we need to have a broader discussion about where the boundaries are for that and where the limitations might be to this everyday collection of our data, both by platforms and by governments. All right, so a, th a third area of our report uh, particularly looks at the changes that are happening in the workplace and how we might think about both uh, the emergence of new kinds of platforms to do work, so the gig economy work, and that's a section of our report about how people think about the emergence of the gig economy, that the nature of, and the future of work as platform driven. But we also ask quite a few questions about using social media at work. Most of us probably do use social media at work. I tweet often and probably too much. Uh, but I guess it's having a broader discussion about what we think about our employers engaging with our use of social media. And we asked a series of questions about both prospective and current employers accessing their employees' public social media profiles, which is something like my use of Twitter, versus 
employers accessing uh, prospective and current employees' uh, private social media posts, which for most people is actually looking at their, um, at their Facebook posts or maybe Instagram and so on. And what we found is that uh, very few people agree that it's okay. So around 37% think it's okay for prospective or current employers to look at public social media posts, but only 20% agreed that it's okay for either current or prospective employers to look at private social media posts. And we did find that this differed in that the high school educated, those not working in professional um, or skilled work, and respondents over 40 were the most concerned about employers accessing their social media posts. That suggests that these groups might actually be more vulnerable to this intrusion into their digital privacy. And maybe we need to think about the well-educated professionals who think it's okay to look at, at their employees' social media posts and why that might be the case as well. Right. And the fourth area of our report uh, really focuses on what we say online. It focuses on free speech in particular. Uh, we asked a whole series of questions about what people think it's okay or not okay to say online. In general, we found that Australians aren't big supporters of the sort of North American ideal that we might think of absolute freedom of speech online. Australians are much more ambivalent. Clearly, for Australians, it depends about whether or not everyone should be able to do and say what they want online. So just over a third agreed that they should be free to say and do what they want online. And then this one is kind of an interesting contrast in that only about 32% say everyone should be free to say and do what they want online. And you can see with this one, young people and men are much more likely to make that kind of assertion that everyone should be, able, should be free to say and do what they want online. Uh, but we asked about more specific scenarios as well. We might say this is a general principle around free speech. But then we asked about more specific scenarios about whether or not people think it's okay to criticise different groups online. So we did find that a majority think it's totally okay to criticise government policy online. Uh, but only 31% think that it's okay to criticise religious organisations or religious belief. Only 26% think it's okay to criticise minority groups. And what was interesting here is that men are consistently much more likely than women to think that the criticisms of these kinds of groups and these kinds of policies is okay. And to an extent, older people tended to think that it was okay to criticise different groups within society. We also looked at whether or not Australians had experienced ne uh, negative impacts from risky or harmful forms of online speech. We found that 39% of the people we surveyed had been affected by mean or abusive remarks online, and 27% had had personal content posted online without their consent or without their agreement. And we also asked about whether or not um, our, uh, our participants wanted more regulation of online discussion environments. And we found that when it came to these questions about speech, they were much more keen on more regulation and a more active presence of platforms intervening in instances of risky or harmful or unfair forms of speech. All right, so that's a really brief kind of snapshot of our 50-page report. Hopefully you'll go away and read it. There's a kind of a whole variety of issues that we've looked at. We've also started to come up with some of what we think are our key recommendations from what should happen. 
So I guess part of what we were trying to do by doing this research and writing this report is really re-angle or reshift the discussion about digital rights in the favour of citizens and the really sort of put to the forefront the role of civil society in shaping how we think about the use of our data, the use of our information. And we're hoping that our research can contribute to that broader debate. And this might take the form of advocating for you know, stronger enforceable rights or regulations over data and our privacy. There are recommendations from the Australian Law Reform Commission and the Productivity Commission that could be taken up here. We'd also like to see a focus on our digital rights at work and what that might mean for um, the security of our employment and our use of digital media at work. But also to be thinking much more about how social media platforms collect and use our data. Australians generally want to know how social media platforms are using our data for other kinds of means. They want to see much more transparency. So um, that's all from me, I think. Thank you. Thank you. I might just go back through Ari's slides to just put back into that. Okay, so now we have uh, the second uh, member of our panel, Ellen Broad. Ellen, go ahead. I'm just going to stay here because I have no slides, so hopefully this means I'll really stick to time. I was also told I could go wherever I liked with this, which is always a terrible kind of instruction to give me to start off with. So I'm going to talk really briefly about three things. I'll talk a little bit about privacy as I saw it in the report, which is an excellent report. There's lots of really valuable insights and observations in it. So if you haven't already read it since it's been released at 11am today, I strongly <laughs> suggest that you do. So frequent, recently I've been thinking a lot about how our experiences of privacy online shape our um, utility as data. So there were some really wonderful kind of statistics in the report, like 67% of people surveyed go to lengths online to protect their privacy. And I think the examples used were around changing your privacy settings was the example used in the report. But we also know we um, observe privacy in these online public spaces in lots of other ways. We choose what to publish and via what platform. We quite often have different personas for different quasi-public spaces. So you might have, so in my case, I use Facebook to begrudgingly like family photos and register <laughs> for events I'm supposed to attend. On Twitter, I am all digital and data. And on LinkedIn, I begrudgingly look at all the kind of corporate social responsibility <laughs> posts. And that's kind of, in terms of my public online presence, that's kind of where it ends. But the reason the kind of evidence about our concerns around privacy, the ways in which we enact our privacy online. The reasons these are really important is because we're starting to use these quasi-public data sources to make decisions about people. And so if you fail to understand the kind of filtering that we're already undertaking before even sharing in these spaces, you can make assumptions about people that may be tangential at best, and yet we're doing it. So um, using social media data for hiring purposes has become not only something a lot of employers use, but it's being factored into machine learning al applications, hiring algorithms. There's a range of startups in Australia that use social media data to assess your workplace capability. 
Um, in the US, there's controversy at the moment around Donald Trump and ICE wanting to use social media data for monitoring of um, potential terrorist activity and kind of heavy social media surveillance more than is already in place. And the challenge is, if you understand the ways in which people um, perform privacy online, that makes your ability to make decisions about people based on that data harder. So we've got to think about the way that privacy filters the information that we actually give out about ourselves. Um, a great example of this actually is I spent a lot of time today in the um, Australian Bureau of Statistics documentation from the 2016 census, which is fabulous in terms of if you want to really understand the limitations of a data set, the documentation that they provide is phenomenal. For every question, they explain how they came up with that category, the things that they had to take into account. 2016 was the first year that they included um, they changed the sex and gender question. Rather than having two tick boxes, they had three. So it wasn't just male and female, it was now male, male, female, or other, please specify. But in the documentation, they pointed out the challenges of accurately capturing this information in a census because people are private about how they identify, even in their own household. If you're an adolescent, you might not tell your parents actually I identify as something other than male, you might want to keep that to yourself. So then from an ethics perspective as we move into data matching and, how you, and start to use sources outside of what we want to disclose about ourselves and we're ready to disclose and instead move into using different kinds of data sources to produce, um, to, to give rise to an idea that you might um, detect that someone may identify as um, intersex or non-binary using other kinds of information about that and that becomes an ethical kind of consideration. We should have control over when and how we disclose information about ourselves. So that was just quickly on privacy. Openness. What really struck me from the report is in order for us to exercise rights of control, we need to understand what is actually happening with data. 78% of people in the report talked about wanting to understand how their social media data was being used and who had access to it. Openness of how data is accessed, um, who has it and the purposes for which it's being used are going to become increasingly important considerations if we're going to main tr maintain trust in the institutions that manage this kind of data. And you can see this happening, the kind of need for transparency around data collection coming through in instruments like the General Data Protection Regulation, but also in the UK they went through this with the National Pupil Database. Um, in the UK every student now has an identifier that follows them from the cradle to the grave. Um, from the minute you're enrolled in pre-primary through to whatever adult learning you may do, you now have a stable identifier and all of your educational information is tied to that. This was a huge deal and one of the kind of considerations, one of the steps that they took to try to make it um, more trustworthy is it's, there's an open register of all of the organisations with access to that data set and the purposes for which they have it. Um, and rejected access requests as well. So at least gives you some um, ability to armchair audit, some ability for the public, not individuals. I really do think it open, when I talk about openness, it's not only to an individual, but um, for people to act on behalf of individuals and understand how data about them is used. Finally, quick last thing was I'm interested in the um, disconnect between the discussion we're having here about 
digital rights and privacy and the announcement just on Friday about the comprehensive consumer right um, to access data about uh, that is held by bank, energy and telecoms companies and how kind of how strange, I can't even quite describe it, in parallel that they are. The consumer right, as it has been defined by government, is not really about um, protecting you from harm, protecting your privacy, protecting you from targeted advertising. It is about your ability to switch between services, which is also important, um, but is barely the kind of tip of the iceberg when we're talking about rights over our data. So I'll leave it there because I'm sure it'll come up in the discussion. Great, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, okay. Well, firstly, thanks for the invitation to participate. Um, and I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. So acknowledging um, that we meet on the land of the Gadigal people and pay respect to their elders past and present. Um, so, as previously mentioned, um, I work for the Community and Public Sector Union. Um, so, for those of you who don't know about the CPSU, um, we're the union that represents employees in the Australian Public Service, ACT Public Service, NT Public Service, CSIRO, the ABC, and in broadcasting and telecommunications. So, in the case of the Australian Public Service, we cover everyone from people who work in Treasury and the ABS to those who, um, to customs officers at airports and those who serve you at Centrelink. So unsurprisingly, my remarks tonight about digital rights will be focused on the workplace um, with a particular focus on issues for public sector workers um, and their use of social media. So as social media usage has increased, there has been this increased blurring of the lines between what is work and the personal. And this has been a particular issue for APS employees. Um, it's meant that making comments about public and political issues is an area of growing uncertainty. Um, and it's a, a particular issue given their need to be seen as impartial. So like other employers, um, the APS has responded by introducing social media policies. So you know, being a workplace policy, it's meant that this, essentially the regulation of pri private conduct on social media can occur um, effectively at management's discretion. Um, and so those policies can limit an individual's freedom of expression outside the workplace. So these issues have been highlighted recently in the media um, by recent media coverage on guidance about the use of social media by APS employees. So in August this year, the Australian Public Service Commission released um, some new guidance on social media policies, um, which provoked quite a reaction. So just for those who don't know about um, the guidance, um, essentially advised APS employees they could be breach, in breach of the APS code of conduct for liking or sharing posts on Facebook that are critical of the government. Um, it went as far as suggesting that APS employees could be held responsible for comments posted by others on their page or if private emails had been screenshotted and posted. So the CPSU criticised this interpretation as overreach. Uh, we strongly believe that APS employees should be allowed to participate in normal democratic debates. Um, so I think it's important to understand the situation for public sector workers. So the situation for public sector employees um, is a bit different to those who, for example, work in the private sector or the non-government sector. 
So there are already limits on the ability of public servants to make public comments in an unofficial capacity um, through a legally binding um, code of conduct. So APS employees can be disciplined for breaching the code of conduct, for reprimands, salary reductions, or potentially being terminated. So generally speaking, you know, if you're an APS employee, you must not make public comment that may lead to a responsible person concluding that they can't serve the government of the day impartially and professionally. Um, so generally speaking, the guidance has previously been that APS employees can generally make public comment in a personal or private capacity um, if the comment is lawful and if it m would mean that they wouldn't be perceived as compromising impartiality or confidence in their agency. Um, so, so people have interpreted this as meaning, you know, avoiding commenting on the work of your specific agency, you know, trying to keep your language courteous um, and o avoiding overly harsh or extreme criticism of the government. So in the CPSU's view, um, APS, agencies, APS agencies should only be regulating the social media commentary of an employee where that commentary would reasonably um, call into the question the capacity of that particular employee to do their job impartially, or if the comment is actually significantly damaging to the reputation or integrity of the agency, just mere criticism should not be sufficient. So while this APS um, social media guidance um, drew attention to this issue, it's not actually the first instance where it has arisen. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would remember in 2015, um, the sports commentator, um, Scott McIntyre, um, was essentially sacked from SBS after making some tweets about Anzac Day. So essentially he was sacked because it was found to be in breach of the SBS um, social media policy and SBS code of conduct. Um, there was another, recent, another example um, within the APS, um, so the Daniel Starr case. So a uh, person who worked for Centrelink for 20 years um, was essentially dismissed after making um, some posts on a pseudonym on the Whirlpool Forum. Um, so he took that case to the Fair Work Commission and it was ruled as unfair dismissal but is still being appealed by um, Centrelink. And there have also been a few other cases recently that have highlighted there is not the implied freedom of communication for individuals, um, particularly in reference to um, the APS and the public sector more generally. So the two examples are the Michaela Banerjee case. So um, some of you may know she was um, an employee of the Department of Immigration who was tweeting criticism of the government's um, immigration policy under a pseudonym. Um, so she tried to argue in the, um, that she had the implied right, freedom, implied freedom of communication, and that was um, dismissed by the federal court. Um, and the other recent example was that of the Army Reserve Officer Bernard Gaynor, who was terminated after making um, a range of what I would say be homophobic comments on social media and on his personal website. So he appealed um, on free speech grounds, um, but those appeals were dismissed. So I'd like to conclude by just saying that the public sector is not the only example of management trying to clamp down on the views um, of employees expressed on social media. So while there are particular issues for public sector workers, um, this issue of freedom of expression on online platforms is by no means an issue limited to the public sector workers. Um, if anything, it will be a growing issue as more employers use social media policies to regulate the private conduct of employees. Um, particularly in the name of avoiding bringing organisations into disrepute. And what it does show is there needs 
to be limits need to be put on management's ability to regulate private conduct, and really a digital privacy agenda should be framed very much as part of a workplace rights agenda. Okay, so thanks. moving mics. How's that? Can you hear me up the back? All good? Excellent. Great. So I will time myself for five minutes and I've got some unstructured remarks about what I'm doing at the moment. So I've got some structured remarks about what's happening um, with the speech, which I will give at the launch um, talk in a moment. But um, I'm working at the 3A Institute and most people don't know what this is. It's the Autonomy Agency and Assurance Institute and we've just started at the ANU. We're about two months old. So I'm here on behalf of Professor Genevieve Bell. Professor Genevieve Bell is this year's Boyer lecturer and um, she's got a fantastic um, uh, history and experience behind her. So she sends her apologies for not coming today. She wished she could be here, but I'm here in her stead. She was the first um, vice president at uh, Intel and she was there for 20 years. And she was an ethnographist or an anthropologist and she was at uh, Stanford and um, she went along because they had, a trouble, they had trouble working out what people wanted. So they could build stuff, but they didn't know how to get that into the homes of people because they didn't know how they would actually use these objects at the end of the day. So she went there and she helped them do that type of thing. So what she's, um, and she ended up being their chief futurist and she still works with Intel, but she's just come back to Australia for a variety of reasons, but one was because the ANU has invited her to come back. So the Vice-Chancellor has set up a series of um, innovation chairs, she's the first one of those, and they're looking to build some institutes to really um, shake up the thinking in academia. And so the intent is to help reimagine the role of engineering. So we're based within the College of Engineering and Computer Science, and we're part of that discussion, but really our role is to ask the questions about what does it mean to engage with this future which is emerging around us? What does it mean to deal with all this technology? How do we imbue ethics into this? How do we think about safety and security and get that designed from the very beginning? So I'm there because Data61, which is part of CSIRO, has decided this is a good idea. So we're co-funding this. So as part of that, I've been um, placed into the, uh, into the space. So my normal day job, I'm a senior research consultant and I help people think about emerging technology. And now I'm down um, at the ANU as um, essentially the, uh, the senior researcher in the space. What am I doing at the moment? I'm hiring. I'm looking for postdocs and associate professors. If you know people, um, please, <laughs> our Twitter handles are up there if you want to get in contact. Um, we're looking for people to start up what we're doing right now. So the idea is we've got five years to see if the institute can come up with good ideas and then turn that into a research school or, well, actually a degree conferring school at the end of the day to help people think about design and engineering and to influence decision makers to make better decisions about um, emerging technologies at the end of the day. So the analogy of what we're doing is very much like what happened when the business dis discipline started. So what happened back in the day was, this was a around the time of the Industrial Revolution, there was all this new stuff going on and people couldn't keep up. So the guy called uh, Warburton, um, you might have heard of, he's now got a university named after him, he went, my accountants aren't cutting it. They're not keeping up with the inventory, they're not keeping up with the stocks and flows, they're not keeping up with the way that we need to handle our finances. He went to the university, dropped a bunch of money on the table and said, I need a better accountant. To their credit, they turned around and said, um, we probably can do better than that. We can probably make um, something a lot more fit for purpose. And so what they did was they gathered a whole bunch of people in an interdisciplinary way and they went out and they grabbed economists and philosophers and ethicists and a whole bunch of people. And they brought them together and they said, right, 
what can we do to solve this problem? And out of that was born the business school. Now, um, having uh, one of my degrees being from a business uh, school, I know it's a little bit wishy-washy, it's a little bit uh, wibbly-wobbly as, as to what that discipline is. So we haven't named ours yet because we're, we, um, we don't want to set out any preconceived ideas about what this thing is. So it's called the Autonomy Agency and Assurance Institute, and it's called that because we're asking questions in that space. What does it mean when you have an intelligent agent acting upon your behalf? There's a whole bunch of questions in there which I won't go into with my one minute left. But we really need to think about what this means. And the questions around privacy and safety and security are paramount. And so that's what we're delving into at the Institute. And hopefully what we'll come up with as, um, as ideas uh, into our future. So over the next 18 months or so, we'll be doing a lot of co-thinking. We'll be bringing people into the Institute, speaking to people around the world at other agencies and other institutions uh, around the world. And um, looking to, uh, to hopefully put something together at the end of that five-year um, time. So very happy to talk more about the Institute if you'd like to speak after the launch. Otherwise, I'll, um, I'll cut it short there. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you so much for inviting me here today. It's, a, it's such a fantastic report, and I'm uh, really grateful to participate in the launch of it. Um, I really want to make, I guess, a three main points before we open up for discussion, because I'm sure that uh, everyone has lots of questions. So I'll try to keep these remarks quite short, but. My first is a reflection on one of the goals of the report to ensure that digital rights are brought into the fold of human and others' rights. And I think this is such an important project right now. For 20-odd years, a little bit more, we've been thinking about the internet in an exceptionalist way, thinking about the internet as a separate space. And I'm there have been many declarations of internet rights over that period. My favourite is, is the one that I think is the best written. It's uh, John Perry Barlow's declaration in 1996. If you haven't read it or if you haven't read it in a while, I, said, I highly recommend it. It opens up with this beautiful language, government of the industrial world. Um, I, I come from cyberspace, the new home of the mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You have no sovereignty where we gather and you have no tools that we need to fear. Now, this is such an interesting statement, right? Because on one hand, it's, it's wrong as a descriptive matter that the internet is not this separate space. But when you look at the effect of this claim, I think it's important to recognize and realize two big things here. The first is we do have a moment of opportunity to think about how we want our online social spaces to look and how we think that our telecommunication services ought to be governed in order to help us flourish. The second is what this uh, disconnect from human rights has cost us over the last 20 years. And I think the biggest problem with, this, um, with the disconnect that the authors identify in the report that human rights activists haven't been speaking to technology activists in any meaningful way, is that we prioritise some rights over others. So freedom of speech has become incredibly important for uh, technology developments. And most of the debates where you go to internet governance debates, when people are trying to raise more substantive issues on the agenda, end up falling down on blanket freedom of speech claims. And they often fall down on very US approaches to freedom of speech claims, which sees corporations, particularly the telecommunications providers, the platforms, 
and the search engines, you know, those companies that do mediate a lot of our online world and existence, they exercise quite strong speech rights on their own behalf to determine what sort of content they are allowed to carry. In the words of um, Rebecca Tushnet, they have their free speech and everyone else's as well. This is a serious problem that we need to address. Um, one of the key opportunities that comes out of this report, I think, is a next step in bridging this divide. That we have an opportunity to leverage 50, 70 years of human rights institutions that are designed to set out what the rights of humans are and to monitor different states and private organisations for compliance against those rights and then to be able to enforce those rights. And so I think one of the really big takeaway messages for me as, as, a, as a scholar and a digital rights activist as well is the opportunity here that this presents to recast a lot of our thinking in human rights terms in order to be able to bootstrap off that work. We don't need a separate declaration of digital rights because digital rights are human rights. And so we can leverage that in order to make real change uh, in the way that the internet is governed today. All right, two, one of the key things that stood out, uh, the substantive findings, is that abuse, abuse and harassment is a real unsolved problem and there's a lot of political pressure to change this. And we don't really know what we want to do. Uh, so the statistic from the report, 39% of women have been affected by mean or abusive remarks and 27% have had personal content posted without consent. Now this is a massive problem and what we see in the other statistics in this report is a demand from Australians for some sort of intervention. But there's a lot of ambiguity about who should be responsible for making the internet safer. And here I think we need to have really deep and difficult conversations about how we design a system that promotes freedom of speech but also protects people from abuse and harassment. We don't have that at the moment. We have a, a mismatch of, mishmash of laws that address individual um, racial discrimination or that they might ad address individual acts of harassment or stalking. Right? Those exist, but they're impossible to, to enforce at the scale of the internet. Fundamentally, internet governance is a massive problem of scale. We can't ask law enforcement agencies and courts to do the massive day-to-day -day work of policing the internet. That work can only really be done by the intermediaries, the telecommunications providers, the search engines, the platform, uh, social media platforms, the content hosts and so on. But also, that raises a massive problem because we don't want those people necessarily making decisions about what content is allowed and what content ought to be blocked, what searches should be revoked. So there's a tension here in the report, in, in the data that the report shows about a desire for uh, greater content moderation and greater responsibility of uh, social media companies and other telecommunications intermediaries to do more to combat abuse and hate speech. We don't actually know what that looks like. And there's a massive challenge for all of us as a society to start thinking about what would an adequate governance structure look like that is appropriate for the digital age. And that brings me to my third 
points. Where the, the authors of the report really highlight this question as, a, as an unsolved question that hopefully they're going to answer in future work. Um, because I'm, I'm super excited about it and I think it's so important. We need to identify what models might exist now and what we might be able to imagine to do public-private governance on the internet right. We once thought of the internet as unregulated and unregulable. That old declaration says that, law, that states have no ability to enforce laws online. Now we know that's not true. It's now clear that governments and private parties have a massive influence on what we see and what we can do and who we communicate with online. Um, quick statistic, Google, for example, now receives 75 million takedown requests for its search engine results every month. The European courts have introduced new rights, like the right to be forgotten, that requires search engines to respond to more of these complaints. We see increasing demands for new regulatory regimes for image-based abuse and um, hate speech and other types of extremist content. Increasingly, lots of different people and lots of different governments are asking these private companies to do more to regulate the internet. And sometimes we think that's great. Other times, we have real conflicts of rights issues. The Turkish government is one of the biggest censors of content on Twitter, for example. Uh, they, the courts there are willing to enforce orders against pro-Kurdish independence content or against um, uh, content that is critical of President Erdogan. There are eventually big conflicts of rights issues that we will need to sort out. And we need to figure out a system that will allow due process and consistency of enforcement at scale. One of the big problems is that we just don't know how the internet is regulated right now. We, don't, we find it very difficult, as someone who, who studies uh, how the internet is governed, it is incredibly difficult to understand how private companies make decisions, how the algorithms that are sorting our news feeds and search results and identifying prohibited content are actually operating, how the army of low-wage content moderators in developing countries are actually making decisions about which posts, which, uh, posts are allowed to stay up and which posts breach the, their rules for the different platforms. We have almost no information about what, how that works. Everything we know we get from leaks and a few investigative journalists who've managed to get access and a couple of really good quality of scholars who've been able to go into these, uh, these, these firms and identify how these processes actually work. That's just not good enough. If we care about digital rights, then we really need to care about process. And one of the big questions we have now is how do we do this in a way that scales? Because we don't want to kill the innovation that gave us all of these brilliant services. Right? We don't want to impose costs that telecommunications providers can't bear. We like to have Google and YouTube and Facebook. We like to criticize them, but we also really like to have them. And so we need to find a way to create a system of oversight that allows us to be comfortable with the decisions that they're making, but that allows them to make those decisions quickly and at scale and efficiently. That's something I think a big unsolved challenge for all of us to think about how we want these social spaces to be governed and regulated.
Thanks very much, Nick, and thanks very much, everyone on the panel. Terrific contribution. So over to yourselves as the audience now. We've got at least 20 minutes for, for questions and answers, and Meredith has one of the mics there. So just pop, indicate, or put your hand up, and we'll run a mic to you. I was just thinking about your remark on um, if we overregulate the internet, it kind of kills the goose that lays the golden egg. And my thought was, what do you think about the difference between ex-ante and ex-post regulation? Like, instead of trying to predict what people will post, why don't you have more sanctioned if something goes wrong? But the, the pro problem with that is people are scared, like, oh no, it's too late. But, what do you think about that? Because it's so hard, as we've seen in other areas like in banking, to list every possible thing that can go wrong because it's a complex world. So what do you think about that? Um, I, I think that that's a, it, it's, a fundamental, it's fundamentally required in the way that we govern the internet to have um, ex post ways of, of dealing with content. In, when we had broadcast media, it was easy to hold the broadcasters liable for every bit of content that they put out because they could be expected to know the content that they put out. We can't have a system like YouTube where someone screens content in advance. We need to have uh, some sort of responsive system. Uh, flagging is, is usually the most effective way, but there are other ways to identify content that breaches rules and bring that to the attention and, and find some way to deal with that quickly. Some of that stuff needs to be dealt with really quickly, so we need to invest, I guess, more resources um, in, you know, there, there have been some controversies over live streaming on Facebook, for example, uh, where Facebook has been criticised for not taking down a live stream within a matter of minutes. And so we need to think about what is reasonable response time in that sort of environment as well. But we're, to address that question of scale, we can't do everything in advance. Thanks very much. Linda. Hi. Um, I'm speaking as an over 60 uh, female, university educated, frequent social media user. Uh, and uh, when uh, Ariadne was presenting the information about the sort of differentials between different uh, social groups around um, trustworthiness or otherwise, um, one of the things I was really struck with was um, the difference between digital governance and I guess black letter law governance in uh, in uh, New South Wales at least, uh, whereby you have to be eternally vigilant um, in that you can change your privacy settings and then next week Facebook or whoever introduces a new policy and you have to kind of tweak it all over again. And I think a lot of people who are less frequent users don't necessarily realise that and don't necessarily realise the uh, necessity for ongoing engagement. What it made me think of was my friend uh, Dr Linda Pai Ford from Charles Darwin University who's a leading Indigenous researcher uh, in Australia. And uh, one of the things that she says is you don't burn the country once you have to keep on burning the country. <laughs> Every year, you have to keep on maintaining these relationships and social networks. Uh, and I guess this is a question that I'd like to just throw open, is whether there's anything to be learnt 
from similar systems that are actually quite open governance systems, whereby um, relationships are actually really at the centre of decision making and policy. Do you want to take that on? Ari, did you want to start? Um, I'll have a bit of a start, but my co-authors gave me permission to throw questions to them, so Fiona, you might have something on this too. So Fiona and Kim up the front. But um, I think there were a couple of dimensions to your question, I'm going to try the first bit, which was about Facebook and... The vast majority of people use Facebook. Um, it's kind of a part of our lives, no matter how much we might resent it in terms of that, but it does keep us connected with our friends and family and our networks and the events in our lives. But the point that you make about Facebook frequently changing its privacy settings is a really important point. And so much the onus is on us to be vigilant, which is actually incredibly unfair. So part of, I guess, the broader debate is what kind of transparency and expectations do we have of these platforms that have become more or less social utilities in our lives? So where is the citizen voice in kind of... And I think um, Facebook is finding out the hard way this year that um, they have an important role and there's been a lot of blowback about their role in various elections around the world and it is affecting them. What happens in the longer term, I don't know. But I think it's really important that we, the, all the onus isn't on individuals to adapt, that it is on um, the platforms to actually protect and nurture their users a bit more as well and respect them. But um, Fiona might have something about the community. Do you want to say something on that? Um, yeah, sure. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting in this respect is what sort of support can governments and can um, non-governmental organisations give citizens to help them understand what responsibilities they might have online. Um, for example, we found a lot of people didn't understand the difficulty of complaints reporting. Mm. And it is quite difficult sometimes to take complaints about, for example, inappropriate content to some of the social media platforms and get them to act. However, um, for example, in our discussion group, people seem to think that it was probably easy so there's a kind of disjuncture or disconnect between what people think they might be able to do online and what they understand are their kind of responsibilities to or their capacity to apply those responsibilities and what they can actually do. And I think we were talking um, about the need for better uh, education in media law, in content regulation, and I wanted to actually um, ask Osmond a question about people's understanding of those social media guidelines, so the APS guidelines. Osman, do you think that most public servants have actually read them and understand their implications? Um, I think if they read them, it was probably only after they were published by the APSC. I quite doubt that they actually had any idea that the APSC was going through this entire process. Um, Well, I think it's more sort of that sort of whether or not it creates a culture of fear because I think unlike a lot of employers, like you essentially, if you are a public servant, the government is your employer. So essentially they cover a range of areas beyond, you know, the work you directly work on. So, for example, if you worked in, you know, the ATO, the tax office, for example, and may, you know, criticism of the government over refugee policy, 
Like, does that really influence how... In, are you really not impartial? Does that influence your ability to do your job impartially? Um, even though it might be interpreted as actually breaching the code of conduct. Like, it's, it, in a way, it's quite absurd. Okay, thanks. We've got a question. Oh, hi. Um, thank you for presenting a um, very good broad spectrum of a limited, I, I would feel, a limited concept of, of rights. Um, when, when these discussions about rights and um, human rights and digital rights come about, very rarely do you hear the, whole, the other concept that there's no right without a corresponding obligation. Um, my right to free speech requires an obligation of somebody else to allow me to, to, to be heard. It, um, such, also, you know, the rights to collect information requires an obligation to uh, you know, use that information correctly. It doesn't work. Rights can't work without corresponding obligations. So if we're going to have a charter of rights, there has to be a corresponding set of obligations. The other thing is the context that you were starting with was, as I was reading it at the beginning, was Austra within Australian law when we know that a lot of these things are determined internationally, overseas, and we we're talking about what we know about with collecting information. We also know that there's a whole nefarious underworld of collecting information by the NSA, by the CIA, by all these institutions which are collecting of the order of zettabytes of information. It's just enormous. The amount, they're, they're collecting everything. And uh, how they're going to use it, that's, it's, it's not in our control. Uh, or at least not yet, unless, unless we become aware of it uh, and do something about it. Um, the other thing is, you know, when we talk about trying to put um, sanctions on free speech, you get into the area of, you know, uh, what the warnings about thought crime, that, you, you, you know, we can't say what we want to say because we're self-monitoring and we're, we're always self-censoring. Self, self so I think we have to, we have to think about that as, as well. And the, I think the answer always to bad speech, as a famous, uh, um, you know, uh, someone said that, the answer to bad speech is more good speech. We have to increase the opportunities for other forums to allow better transparency. If, if, if Facebook is a problem, there should be more an encouragement of other social spaces that could compete with Facebook, that could be alternatives to Facebook. And there's, instead of always being on the back foot, we have to be a bit more active, I think. Not always being like victims of this, but being active and trying to encourage new forms of speech, better forms of speech, more transparent forms of speech, and more transparent systems. So many good thoughts. Um, a couple of things that I was thinking about whilst you were speaking and also talking about public servants and social media and the comments that you're making about self-censorship, that the more that we feel surveilled and inspected, the more likely we are to self-censor. And at the back of my mind is this kind of like, is this a good business strategy for social networks to encourage a sense of being surveilled? Because if you think, so already in terms of the Australian public service, I have a real, it's really hard for public servants to use social media in a positive way to engage with online communities. Like, because they're so locked down and there's so many guidelines and, um, 
that sense of being inspected and reviewed, that it makes it really hard to do anything positive in what, as Nick has said, is also can be a really positive space for connecting with people. Similarly, in our own valued social networks, the way that we use Facebook, the more that you start to feel like what your friend likes will affect your ability to get a job, for example, which for example, in China, the citizen trust score system that will be rolled out by 2020 extends, just like it does with public servants, to what your network does. This is part of the citizen trust score in China to how your friends and family operate will affect your kind of standing. So people will just stop using them in the ways that generate valuable, useful oversharing that social networks like. Like the more we feel surveilled, and you can see it in the age kind of distribution, that will change the way we use social networks. So I want, that's my thought experiment for like whether we'll eventually do ourselves out of finding value in social networks at all if you feel like you can't use them to share and communicate and be positive and do all of these things that people use them for at the moment. The only other comment I had was about corresponding obligations. Um, I am, I just, I agree. Um, I also think about it in terms of not only obligations, so like for example, if I have a right to access data, what are the corresponding obligations on the part of the data collector? Like, you know, in what format do they need to provide it to me? How do they have to take care of it? How do they have to make sure it's well curated? But also I think about that in terms of tempering the way we talk about owning data, because um, one of the things that I think about a little bit in the back of my mind is we talk a lot at the moment about owning our own data, having the right to request it, the right to modify it, delete it, that it's ours, but actually, um, service providers are taking on a lot of the burden of storing that data, um, keeping it up to date. Like that's, um, that's a burden that we don't want to take on necessarily. So I just kind of think it's that corresponding obligations is both how are they going to help you enact your right, but then also how do we appreciate the obligations that they take on on our behalf with data. Right. Thank you very much, Helen. Yeah. Hi. Um, so in your report, um, which was great, um, you mentioned the gig economy as an emerging field of work. Um, and I just wanted to know, in gig economy platforms such as Amazon Mechanical Turk and Airtasker and Odesk, who some of them use um, surveillance technology like desktop screen capping and entry through webcams to monitor their workers, how do you think the digital rights and that relationship between the employer and the employees monitoring social media and social media policies will shift to reflect a growing virtual workplace? Uh, so there's a small part of the report where we started to ask about, I guess, the future of work and um, also the emergence of, uh, I guess, how uh, consumers were using different gig economy platforms, sort of commonly known Uber, uh, Deliveroo, Airtasker, these sorts of things. Um, I mean, Amazon Turk isn't, I think, 
Yeah, it's evil. Um, but it isn't on a sort of large scale here yet. But I think all of those instances you're pointing to that are radically changing what work even looks like, how um, work is, I guess, purchased by consumers, um, irrespective of um, any kind of job security or industrial rights for those people offering those services online, is a really big issue and is really important. And um, one of our, I guess, that concerns is that trade-off between consumer rights versus workers' rights within that space and how we can kind of have that broader conversation as well. So your points are very apt for that. Could I jump in on that one? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I was doing some research at Data61 around the, the future of work and we were looking at the gig economy. I, I hate the term. Um, but that platform is, is emergent and it's showing us what the potential is in that space. And one of the things that really occurred to us was the potential for corporates as they are now to employ that type of technology to enable, enable people to work remotely. And so there's a, a big push in, in that space. But then they're asking questions about how do we look at performance, how do we assure ourselves of workplace health and safety and those sorts of things. And they're going, great, there's this internet of things, we can use that to give us all this information. But you're right, it really does leverage that power dynamic which is already in their favour and there's potential there for, for bad things to happen. To go back to some of the previous questions that we've had though, um, yes our research agenda is looking at rights and responsibilities in this space and duties as well. And there's lots of interesting spaces out there at the moment where the legislation is either silent or points to only very similar, or sorry, only very small parts of the actual problem that we're dealing with on a bit of a tangent. At the moment, if you're dealing with a robot, um, the only thing out there that says who's accountable for what is the person who presses the button, and that's under a piece of, um, uh, uh, it's a regulation, Regulation 22 under the WHS uh, legislation. So the person who energises the, the plant is the, basically the person who is accountable. But there's a, a long, and interesting question there about who's actually accountable at the end of the day. But I'm going off on a bit of a tangent to come back to the, the first question about um, country and, and backburning and, and mm. taking care of country. This domain that we're in is not a new domain. It's a power domain. It's a domain that we've been part of for, for a very long time now. And we need to keep being part of that conversation and that we need to be engaged. And yes, um, things will be eroded but we need to look back to what's happened in the past and usually when we see these sorts of changes, we've seen them before, we've seen these patterns before and we need to go back and reflect on, okay, this time what's different and how can we learn from those lessons and put those sorts of things into place. So yes, the gig economy has potential to do bad things, but there's also potential there for positive aspects to come out of the technology, so we need to look to, to what those are and then to try to put the institutions and conversations in place that will deal with that effectively. Thank you for the forum, always fascinating. I would like to add an element, which if it's already known, please forgive me, but that is that in respect of the Facebooks and the Googles, yes, we are users and we derive benefit and there are problems have been indicated, but we are also fodder for those organizations to make money. The more users, me, you, him, her, the more they can charge for their advertising spaces. So there's a little bit of a vicious circle. It actually gives us power, but because it's not coordinated, not much power. And be great if there was a comment on that. And the second point related to that is that I just finished reading War and 
Anti-War by Alvin Toffler. It's 15 years old, to my embarrassment, but it is incredible and it touches on the kind of things that have been talked about, and that is that power originally was by those who controlled the agrarian economies and then the industrial economies, but now it is the knowledge economies. Governments are losing power to control, implement policies, because we all on public and social media can actually take control of it. So whether that's good or not, it goes to the obligation of users. So to comment for what they are worth. Thank you. Okay. In response from the panel, briefly. There's a great cartoon that has a bunch of pigs inside a barn, and they're going, this is fantastic, you know, we get free food, free lodging, free accommodation, and the caption reads, um, if you're not paying for the product, you probably are the product, and it talks about social media. So, yes, you're, you're very apt there, <laughs> very correct. <coughs> very true. Very true. For purposes of time, we'll keep going with the last two questions. My question is on digital censorship. One of the speakers mentioned Turkey and Twitter, that the government, the, the Turkish president Erdogan, uh, was able to exercise influence on Twitter to get it to shut down uh, certain aspects of it. What my question is, can a government actually shut down Twitter or, do, or can, does Twitter have to agree under coercion or threat or blackmail to shut it down. Are governments actually capable of shutting down Facebook or Twitter or any other social media platform? That's a great question, and I'll keep, it, I'll keep the answer brief. Um, the answer is quite complicated, really. Um, in, to some extent, we have seen internet shutdowns, um, particularly at times of crisis. The, the Egyptian uh, government famously ordered that all telecommunications links to Egypt were cut down at the moment of the revolution in order to try to stop people from organising over Facebook and other social media, um, and SMS as well. Um, so it is possible, ultimately, to have that sort of power if you've got power over the, the main entry points into the country. You can always walk into a telecommunications provider with your police and with your army um, and shut down the incoming links. What we're seeing is governments becoming much more sophisticated in how they exercise control. Um, Country, companies that have some sort of business interests in a country will often bow to the demands of the courts uh, in that state, even if they're, like Twitter, based in the US primarily. Uh, so they will obey a legitimate court order because they have assets and interests in that region. Uh, they can choose not to follow certain orders, but they won't suffer consequences. So they've got difficult decisions. And we saw, for example, Google pull, out of, pull its services out of China rather than acquiesce to the demands of the Chinese state. These debates are still going every day as country, countries try to rely uh, or try to require the massive telcos to comply with their laws, and the telcos try to make a decision about whether they will or not. Thanks very much. Now, last question. Uh, thank you. Um, so you talked about the trade-off between security and privacy, and that seems to be on a government 
um, spectrum. So that's between you and the government, you trade off between security and privacy. With corporations, it's more of a convenience in privacy. So the example of Uber is it lands at my door because it's got location tracking and they know where I am at all times. Um, if I have a right to security and I have a right to privacy, do I have a privilege or do I have a right to convenience? And um, I guess in the context of the energy banking and telecommunications legislation you're talking about, is that something that's important and, and is that the trade-off that we should be making? So I don't think it's about um, thinking of them as separate rights. It's overlapping considerations. So your, your sense of privacy is going to be influenced by your desire for convenience. Um, you will be more concerned with certain practices than you might be with others. I know I really don't like it when Uber drivers try to find out what my last name is so they can look me up on social networks, but I accept giving them my first name and that they know where, my live, where I live because I want them to pick me up from my house, but it's this constant experience that we navigate not only online but offline in lots of different ways. Um, we give over our credit card details over the phone to purchase things and you're always balancing this tension between convenience and privacy. Security I think is just like a fundamental, like if you are managing people's sensitive information you should be able to keep it secure. That's like a um, it's, it's almost like separate, to me, how you keep data security is something separate from how we treat data in terms of privacy. Like Uber, as a trusted, although that's a loaded term now with Uber and everything they've done, not only just with the latest data leak, but in general is, but, but they are supposed to be capable of maintaining the security of their data assets. That's kind of a core, it's not even like a right to security, it's like a good non-negligent practice. practice. It's just not being negligent. In terms of the consumer legislation, it's, you should still have, like we should not only be able to switch between providers so we get better services, because that's built into our consumer laws, but you should also be free from discrimination in how you access those services, which is our anti-discrimination and anti-vilification laws. We don't go for better consumer choice, we accept discrimination. So I guess my point with the, um, with the telcos and energy and banking legislation, which if you haven't seen it, it will allow you to um, request the transfer of your data from, your, from you to a third party as well as access it yourself, is I would want to see not only the consumer right bit of freedom of choice, but also the freedom from um, targeted credit profiling in ways that show evidence of bias. So they should be able to um, fit together, not that I choose one over the other. Great. Can you uh, please thank the panel for that? <laughs> Um, so now I'd like to call on Rob Hansen to launch the report for us, after which we'll have some refreshments. So Rob? Well, first let me start by thanking you for honouring me with the opportunity to say a few words and launch your excellent report. And without delay, may I congratulate you for your admirable hard work. I'd like to acknowledge the Chief Investigators of the Digital Rights and Governance in Australia and Asia project that gave rise to the Digital Rights in Australia report. Congratulations to Professor Jared Goggin, Professor Ariadne Roman, 
Professor Kimberly Wetherill, Professor Michelle Ford, and Dr. Fiona Martin. I'd also like to recognise Deputy Vice-Chancellor Professor Duncan Ivison for his strategic foresight in supporting this innovative program. I'd also like to acknowledge the very important contributions made to this report by Adele Webb, Lucy Sunman and Francesco Bailo. You and your larger extended team have all collectively applied yourselves for an extremely worthwhile cause and we thank you for your efforts. It sounds trite to utter the phrase that now is a unique moment in history, or that now is a pivotal time, but now is all we ever have. And the trends in the intersection of our digital and physical worlds are escalating at a rate and a pace that is hard to imagine or respond to in real time. So what we need now are people and organisations who are willing to invest the time to look ahead and apply some forethought and foresight to the world that is emerging. Your survey has taken an excellent step in this direction. Quantified data, if used well, can cut through confused or complex public discourse and speak directly to decision makers and thought leaders with authority and provide a temperature check of where we are now. And your results are both enlightening and concerning. A majority of your respondents do not believe that they have anything to hide and yet a similar proportion take active steps to protect their privacy and either express concern for or question what corporates are doing with their information. The majority also expressed concern for the way governments retain their data and expressed concerns for related violations of their privacy. These findings ring true with my own experience and many anecdotes I've encountered. When, when questioned, the public express a vague sense of unease. However, the sources of threat and risk are often ill-defined. As an experienced risk management practitioner, I can say that it is often only when there is a clear and present danger that action is taken. Take, for example, the gender imbalance in the survey, with women expressing concerns for adequate privacy controls at a much higher rate than men. What we are witnessing here is the intersection of the physical and cyber worlds, with the full range of human frailty and human experience now being lived online, not just expressed or represented, but experienced in a very intimate and often unavoidable ways. Men see less danger online because they face less danger themselves. I'm descended from survivors of the um, Dachau concentration camp. Last year I made the pilgrimage. The situation we presented with reminds me of Martin Namola's poem on his experiences written just after the war. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it was rather touching when I was there. <clears throat> First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. My family is not Jewish, but our history is forever joined with the survivors, and the lost. <clears throat> It is not until we are faced by a direct threat that we feel the need to protect ourselves. If we are able to see ourselves as part of a larger family, perhaps we could collectively respond better to the threats that appear to only target others. 
unless robust controls are in place for our cyber-physical world, we are at the mercy of bad actors or overreaches in the public and private sectors as they arrive, which, will, which we will all have to endure until we as collectively learn how to respond. We are stronger together. However, we have been thinking about these problems for a long time now. In 1969, Professor Zellman Cohen, who would go on to be a Governor General, addressed this in his Boyer Lectures. Cohen cited Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, Louis Brandis, that discovery and invention has made it possible for the government, by means far more effective than stretching upon the rack, to obtain disclosure in court of what is only whispered in the closet. Cohen then amplifies this by quoting Professor Arthur Miller, that in the face of the accelerating development of technology, the individual has limited or little ability to protect themselves against governmental and private snoopers. Viewers have more than a dim awareness of what is happening and how fast it is happening. And we are warned that serious as is the problem of physical surveillance devices in the present and the coming decade, it may be dwarfed completely by the surveillance of individual and group life threatened by the unlimited use of electronic data systems in the years that lie not far ahead. These words, Cohen's words, words of warning echo to us from across the decades. From the same decade is the United Nations International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which took until 1976 to come into force. The rights outlined in this covenant derive from the inherent dignity of the human person. Article 17 states that no one shall be subjected to arbitrary or unlawful interference with their privacy, correspondence, nor to unlawful attacks on their honour or reputation, and that everyone has the right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. It is hard to imagine decision makers in the 60s or 70s picturing the world we live in now. The portents were there, but more importantly, the values expressed in this covenant and similar documents remain valid and universal. As we further embrace technology, the need to protect the rights of all the members of our societies become more complex if we seek to design a world our world, with the safeguards we need to enable the rights we believe in. Perhaps the concept of universal design mentioned in the, in the report, which is about inclusive designs, usually focused upon empowering the disabled, should be revised and stretched in order to consider these universal human rights with the intent of imbuing technology with positive values and paradigms. If we truly risk to embed universal rights into our societies, for our privacy, for our freedom of speech, for good government, we need to code them into our platforms and products in our cyber physical world. Otherwise, the default values and paradigms of the people and organizations who build them will intentionally or unintentionally propagate across borders and boundaries potentially undermining the purity of the jurisdictions receiving their algorithms, data, and decisions. I love the term splinternet, mentioned at the very end of the report, as a term that describes the huge variety of regulations and laws that govern the internet from every jurisdiction, 
which could just as well be extended to mean the way that these algorithms, data and decisions can and do splinter the intent of the laws and values of jurisdictions around the world. Jurisdictions like ours. As Cohen said, we cannot assume that privacy will survive simply because we have a psychological or social need for it. Vigilance and foresight are our defences. We have much to work to do. May I commend you again on the launch of your report? Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.